Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. I am uh, Camille Foster of Freethink. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. A few brief words of warning. This program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations of various kinds. This is episode 51, recorded on the evening of March 28, 2017. Uh, I am joined today by Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. And uh, I, I've heard that Michael Moynihan is moving through the subterranean, gross, disgusting tunnels of Manhattan inbound to us and will noisily make an entrance any moment now. Especially if he's going to be cracking open some of those uh, listener-donated uh, whiskey bottles that you have assembled there, nicely there over is, there in the corner. Yes, and I am going to credit those people by name later in the program. I am completely unprepared, uh, typically, and uh, I don't have their names uh, right in front of me. But we have two massive bottles uh, of, of alcohol, which... We would like to share with our guest, but cannot because he's not in the room with us. But I'm sure if he were here, he would be drinking quite hard with us. Uh, it is it's Kentucky, Kentucky Congressman Thomas Massey. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Well, I, I appreciate it, and, I, and it is a distinct honor for both of us. I'm, I'm pleased to be able to talk to you. Uh, last time we were uh, together, it was for a television appearance on a, on a show that Matt and I used to help with called The Independence, which, of course, as you know, Congressman, is the greatest show in television history. Um, but uh, you were eating a hemp bar <laughs> on air, and it was, it was remarkable, and I was very proud to have been a part of that moment. Um, yeah, are, you, my kids, are you eating a hemp bar now? My kids came home from school the next day and said, Dad, uh, the, our classmates said you were eating marijuana on TV. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You've well, taught them well. That's well, good. I'll tell you what, that, that wasn't fake news. They were, uh, <laughs> they were telling the truth. And in an era when you don't know who you can trust, uh, you can always tr- trust the man who is eating a, a hemp bar. Um, but, but look, uh, Congressman, there's been a great deal going on, and, and I think a lot in the news cycle that we would love to, to sort of chat with you about. Um, the the healthcare reform efforts of the Trump administration have recently failed. Um, there are all sorts of machinations on, on Capitol Hill um, with the Trump administration blaming the Freedom Caucus, people with whom you have some association, I believe. Um, and, Very close. Uh, we've, got, we've got some tax reform stuff coming up. So Perhaps we could start with uh, with sort of what happened last week. And, and I apologize because there is going to be a noisy interruption any moment. I see Michael Moynihan um, brooding in the uh, in the hallway there. We were going to wait for those mics. It's OK. <laughs> Just come in and sit down. Right. Congressman Massey is here Hi, you're, 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 and you're late. So on, on uh, walk us through a little bit, if you can. Uh, uh, we've seen a lot of reporting since the this whole thing failed uh, moments of, you know, Steve Banning sitting down and saying, You've, you, we're not going to talk about this. You just got to vote for it. Uh, people sitting down the Freedom Caucus and perhaps you were in the room, too, with uh, Donald Trump. Give us a, little, a bit of a snapshot of what it was like there in the final 24 hours in that push. Oh, my gosh. This thing was like a rocket whose fins had fallen off. Uh, it started off in the wrong trajectory 18 days before, and the rocket took off. And uh, there in the last few days, it was it was <laughs> traveling erratically 
And I said on Thursday, obviously they pulled the bill on Friday uh, from consideration. But on Thursday, I said, this rocket has gone crazy. The best we can hope for is it lands in the ocean and sinks. Now, I and should just it, interject here that you're an MIT graduate, so you're only capable of speaking in rocket metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an electrical engineer. I'm not a rocket scientist, but I like to pretend one when I'm in Congress. It's the same thing. That is <laughs> yeah. no need it's to It's practically the same thing. Yeah. Anyways, um, you know, so, you know, I did a lot of media last week. I probably went on TV more last week than I've been on TV in my life. And I was trying to get the message out there that this was a big game of chicken uh, and that uh, reality, in fact, I said these words, I said reality is going to come crashing down on Thursday. And um, they were able to avoid reality for one day by postponing the vote, but then reality came crashing down. And I also predicted that they would claim they had the votes right up until they pulled the bill, and which is also what happened. The speaker did Congress a great disservice by going on TV for literally, you know, the entire week leading up to the debacle of the bill being pulled and saying that they had the votes. So I felt compelled to go on TV and say they don't have the votes. And then on, um, I believe it was Thursday or Wednesday, Mick Mulvaney came. He's a former Freedom Caucus member who's now the OMB director. He came to our Republican conference, and um, he was carrying a message from Trump. And he said, I've got a message from my boss. He's rather remarkable. He's not like most of us politicians. And um, <laughs> he wants you to know that, number one, he's done negotiating. There, mm. are, there will be no changes to this bill. And uh, number two, the vote is going to happen tomorrow, and he doesn't care if it passes or fails. We're going to have a vote, and he's going to find out who's on his side and who's not, and there will be a vote. And then the third thing he said is, if this fails, we're done with health care. You're done with health care. We're moving on. Wow. And I, they asked me, what do you make of all that? And I said, it's all a big bluff. Did you say that before or after you pissed yourself? <laughs> yeah, I was shaking. Yeah. I was terrified. In fact, I, I uh, sent out a tweet that said, <laughs> if the executive branch tells the legislative branch what to vote on, when to vote, how they're going to vote, and what he's going to allow them to do if the vote fails, is that a republic? Hmm. And that got a little, uh, you know, a little coverage. Now, Mulvaney's yeah, but, a little traction. I, I saw that. Mulvaney's myself, a yeah. friend of yours, right? I mean, uh, he's a, certainly a colleague. You guys were pretty happy. And again, I'm sorry. I'm lumping you in yeah. with the Freedom Caucus. You don't join anything with the exception <laughs> of the Republican Party, apparently. Um, well, but, well, I wanted to be chairman of a caucus, and I hadn't even joined a caucus. So I started the Second Amendment Caucus here. But it's really literally the only thing I've joined is the caucus that I started. You know, uh, uh, Congressman, this is Michael Moynihan. I'm the one yeah, who is uh, fashionably late. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to make a grand, uh, rather dramatic entrance. At least um, And thanks for coming on. You know, none of this, of course, I suspect is a surprise to you. I mean, you're dealing on an issue like health care, and you're dealing with a president who is nominally, and let me underline that word a few times, of your party. And I was trying, pulling up the quote uh, from a debate 
uh, in which uh, Donald Trump was asked, you know, he said, you know, 15 years ago, you, you called yourself a liberal on health care and you praised the Canadian system. This is a point in which the, the, pre- the soon to be president would maybe pivot and say, you know, my ideas have evolved on the, on the issue. And he responded as far as uh, a single payer, it works in Canada. It works incredibly well in Scotland, which is very strange because that's part of the United Kingdom is the NHS and it's the all, all of the United Kingdom. So, I mean, none of this should really surprise you, I suppose. I mean, you're going into this and every I hear all these people saying the Freedom Caucus spoiling for a fight, destroying it, saddling us with Obamacare forever. I mean, we have a president, don't we, who's been pretty clear about his ideas and vision about health care. Let me be clear. I'm I am still operating under the assumption that this president uh, wants to accomplish those things that he campaigned on, and I'm and I'm not saying that uh, ironically or sarcastically. Sure. I think that he got bad advice from Paul Ryan. I am not laying the blame for this at Donald Trump's feet. Uh, he's a big picture guy, and. Um, when he picks the right subcontractor, good things happen. So he went – here's an example. He went to Heritage, and he went to the Federalists, and he asked them for a list of Supreme Court nominees. And they gave him a lot of uh, good candidates, and he picked one of those. And he's a hero for it right now. Uh, there's, there are very few, if any, Republicans who are upset with that choice. Mm-hmm. Contrast that to the way he went shopping for a health care plan. He came to the swamp and uh, asked the folks in the swamp to write him a health care uh, plan and then adopted this swamp creature. <laughs> and um, I think that's where he went wrong, frankly. Um, I do think that he wants to... He's not concerned with the particulars of what repeal or replace means. He just wants a good repeal and a good replacement. And I think he just uh, latched on to the the first thing that came along, and it was the worst thing that came along. Now, you've been uh, – you brought up Paul Ryan. You were part of the group that defenestrated his uh, predecessor, John Boehner. And I seem to recall – I'm going to have to look that up. Did yeah. I take down his grades? Uh, he was really nice. You were really nice to John Boehner. <laughs> uh, chucked him out of the window yeah. uh, in, six, okay. in 16th century Prague. Um but uh, I th- I, I'm pretty sure I heard you say in uh, close proximity to me at some point that, ah, well, you know what? We'll give Paul Ryan a, a year. We'll see how he does. Yeah. We'll see if he goes through the kind of procedural reforms of, hey, if you're going to pass a bill, do it this way. So can you talk about how you see his role in terms of fulfilling that little aspect that you were asking for, that he do things in a new and better way that's pleasing to you, regardless of what the content of the bill was at the end? You know, he has clamped down on the process more than John Boehner did. Um, We typically, under John Boehner, every year that I was here under John Boehner, he always allowed an open amendment process on the appropriations bills. And I was able to offer some wonderful amendments on uh, industrial hemp, on uh, rolling back firearms regulations in D.C., and they passed. And these were great things, but then when Paul Ryan came along, he would not allow the very same gun amendment that John Boehner allowed me to get a vote on. Paul Ryan wouldn't allow a vote on it. So in that regard, he's doing worse. And uh, something else that I want to talk about, 
is that um, John Boehner always, well, Congress, I think, always worked this way. You basically got your committee assignments in December, you know, November, December, so that when the Congress started in January, you could hit the ground running. We didn't have committees established in January. We didn't even have committee chairmen established in January after Trump was elected. One of the reasons we got off to such a slow start, sorry, that's a buzzer telling me that the floor is is now closed for debate, I think. But one of the reasons we got off to such a slow start was we didn't have committees because Paul Ryan wouldn't give anybody a committee assignment, much less a, a chairmanship, um, until he won the vote on the floor on January 3rd for speaker. Hmm. So he, re he really... That was a little more uh, Machiavellian than even John Boehner. So, so go ahead. I was. I just wanted to take a, a step back quickly with respect to the health care bill. I mean, you yeah. mentioned that phrase "repeal and replace," a phrase that has been with us since March of 2010, when the Affordable Care Act was actually passed. Um, why isn't there a, a and this is a Matt Welch question? I'm asking on Matt's behalf. <laughs> why isn't there a Republican proposal? like a sound one, one that has been sort of well-honed and shaped and figured out at this point um, for an actual replacement bill. It's been a really long time. Um, and what I saw happen was just this dog's, dog, dog's breakfast of bad <laughs> ideas. Um, and I don't know that, that this would have been much better if any other Republican had been elected president because the president didn't have any ideas, but it didn't seem like there was a real sort of concrete uh, idea amongst Republicans more broadly. Well, I can tell you what, if we had elected Rand Paul, we wouldn't be in this malaise right now with regards to health care. I mean, he's a doctor and, and he understands what's broken. Eh, but let doc me Doctors let me don't necessarily know much about health care economics, yeah. though, in, well, in fairness. <laughs> my, my doctor um, doesn't anyways. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, I I tend to think that Rand has some good ideas on this, and I've co-sponsored his offer here in the House um, to reform health care or health insurance. But um, let me say there are a lot of members on the Hill here who are walking around uh, as if somebody shot their dog. They, they look <laughs> de they look so depressed, and it's just a few of them. I'm not going to name their names. Uh, borderline on in tears uh, because they have come to the realization that we we don't really have 218 conservatives here in the House that meant what they said uh, when they said they wanted to repeal Obamacare root and branch. Uh, that's the that's sort of the terrifying thing here. I, was, I wasn't going to vote for this bill. In fact, I changed my vote from no to hell no, if you follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I did um, see that. As, <laughs> as it progressed. But there is this sense, this coming to grips with reality that it's going to be hard to get anything done that resembles what we campaigned on, given the lack of a moral constitution among our colleagues here. And, and some of that is pressure from lobbyists, from the health insurance industry. Um, some of that is just fear of getting of not getting reelected. Um, but they really have sort of lost their constitution here. 
There's it, yeah, it, it, Congressman. Just in a broader sense, you know, it's funny. All three of us here uh, are from different parts of the country, but we all live in New York City. And I know all three of us have heard after the election of Donald Trump that, good God, both houses of Congress, the presidency appointing a Supreme Court justice, Donald Trump is going to drive a freight train through Washington, D.C. He's going to get everything that he wants in tyranny is going to reign, especially <laughs> when you have this authoritarian personality. Now, I mean, you see this uh, tweet where he's attacking the Freedom Caucus and, by the way, attacking uh, Heritage and Club for Growth and um, you know, the Freedom Caucus is something that was created with ideology in mind, with ide ideological principles. You have a president who seems to be rather shaky on what his own ideological principles are. Steve Bannon, obviously, as as you well know, um, is a populist, is somebody who hates trade. As far as, you know, governing in these first couple of months, you know, the the the, the um, uh, executive order on on on. Uh, 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 what am I saying? I just said, I just said, I started talking about an executive order, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the executive order, uh, you have uh, healthcare. In these things, the wheels come off them so quickly. What is it like with, a, as a person like you, a congressman like you, when you're in the Freedom Caucus, when you're lined up ideologically and you have a president that is like this, what is it like for governing and what is your hope like for the future? Well, I'm still hopeful, Okay. Uh, there, there are moments when populism lines up with libertarianism, but um, let me tell you about a realization that I came to when I was in Iowa campaigning for Senator Rand Paul to be president. You see, in 2012, his dad did very well in Iowa, got like a quarter of the vote and a quarter of the vote in New Hampshire and did very well in Nevada. Um, I ran in 2012 on the same sort of libertarian ideas, Senator Rand Paul had blown a hole through the establishment Republican Party in Kentucky in 2010 on libertarian Republican ideas. And so I thought the libertarian ideology within the Republican Party was really catching on, that it was popular. But then when I went to Iowa, I saw that the same people that had voted for Ron Paul weren't voting for Rand Paul. They were voting for Donald Trump. And the same thing happened in Kentucky. The people who were my voters ended up voting for Donald Trump in a primary. And so I was in a funk because how could, how could these people let us down? How could they go from being libertarian ideologues to, to voting for Donald Trump? And then I realized what it was. They weren't voting for the libertarian in the race. They were voting for the craziest son of a bitch in the race <laughs> when, they, when they voted for me and Rand and Ron earlier. So Trump just won, you know, that category but, and but that... dumped, dumped the ideological baggage. Really, it allowed him to move much quicker. Yeah. But that that leads How did that leads seven to... collapse, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> that leads to a uh, a follow-up which is that right now we're in this weird position where after the Friday vote Trump's original comments were kind of magnanimous. He blamed Democrats half-heartedly. He said that they're going to come and eventually realize that they need to help write the bill. But as the weekend progressed, you saw a lot of Trump world going after the House Freedom Caucus pretty uh strenuously. Um and so isn't it so that perhaps in this moment, 30 of you people, and again, I realize you're not in the Freedom Caucus, but you're next to them. Mm -hmm. um, you guys are once again 
the craziest people in the room. You're crazier than Trump. Trump is now collaborating with Paul Ryan. Uh, he's getting like plaudits from the Mark Tiasons of the world, the Wall Street Journal editorial pages page. All of these kind of like institutional sellouts yeah. are sitting there and saying it's all you crazy people over there are the problem. So maybe uh, you guys get some of your uh, uh, lunatic mojo back. You know, uh, Donald Trump campaigned on draining the swamp. If he gets up here and hops in it and thinks it's a hot tub like the rest of these guys, we're going to be in trouble. And this this was my great fear is I think, you know, I, I joked about ideology and why Trump was elected. But I think when people looked at 16 candidates on the stage, they said that's the guy that doesn't owe anybody in Washington, D.C. anything. And that's the guy least likely to fall in league with the rest of them when he gets there and the guy most likely to get us some change. And that's why they voted for him. And I said the biggest risk of this uh, is, is going to be if he comes here and he doesn't do what he said. And if he, he if he becomes establishment, the next revolution is not going to be at the ballot box. I mean, they're literally going to be here with pitchforks and torches if electing Donald Trump didn't change anything, what the hell is going to change anything? And that's that's what I think may be the next step. But I'm still hopeful. I think he'll realize, hopefully, because he, he has lashed out at the Freedom Caucus, but I think he's lashed out at everybody over this. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm hoping when it all settles that um, he'll see that we did him a favor, that conservatives in the House did him a favor by – showing him that this next real estate purchase had a bad foundation. Well, the, the rumblings out of Washington now suggest that the uh, with the debacle of this uh, health care reform effort um, in the uh, in the rearview mirror, that we are moving quickly towards potentially some sort of uh, tax reform. Um, and I mean, you, you talked a moment ago, you suggested that there were some parallels, some some similarities, some places, points of overlap between uh, sort of economic nationalism, populism, um, in other words, and uh, libertarianism, wh- where where are those points and, and how do they come into play here? I mean, Paul Ryan is a guy who um, has traditionally been about sort of balanced budgets and, and reducing taxes, all those traditional conservative things. Balanced and, budgets in 50 years. But yeah, in, in 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but more recently, I mean, he's talking about this, there's this border tax uh, that's been floated around and there's, there's nothing particularly free market about that. That is a uh, that is populist as all hell, um, but it's it's Don't certainly use not their language. It's a tariff. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's an import tariff. But but I mean, where where are these points of uh, points of agreement? How does uh, how do you well, see things breaking down um, when it when it comes to this uh, the the tax proposal that is yet to materialize, um, but uh, but seems to be developing? Well, I wasn't particularly thinking about the tax proposal when I was thinking about overlap, but I'll I'll talk to that. Um, sure. But and let I, me tell you I, what I, I was. apologize if I if I push you push you into a particular oh, no, I'll, box. With I'll that. go there. Yeah. I'm pliable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, um, you know, where I thought that populism and libertarianism might overlap is the fact that we're sick and tired of paying for the defense of other countries and sick and tired of all these wars in the Middle East and, and elsewhere. Um, that seems to be a populist thing. um, And I was hopeful that, you know, uh, Trump would get here and and follow through on that. Um, I appreciate the past tense there. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it seems to be disappointing on that score. 
yeah. Well, I didn't. I didn't say I w- I'm no longer hopeful. I yeah. just said I was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the also the concept uh, that we are a sovereign country. Now you may, you know, libertarians may disagree on this. Maybe they like the World Trade Organization, but I can tell you Ron Paul was never a fan, and I'm not a fan either for the same reason, um, that we're giving up sovereignty to them. And, and so that's sort of a, a populist notion that um, that overlaps, at least sure. with my my flavor of libertarianism. Sure. Let no, me tell you, taxes are bad, okay? All taxes are bad. Uh, but— the border adjustment tax is similar in, in effect, or at least economically, what the economic distribution of a fair tax, which is a very uh, popular notion. The, you know, the libertarian concept is that you'd have no tax, I guess, but you, you have to collect the tax somewhere. And the, the economic result of a fair tax is, is very similar to the a border adjustment tax. I worry in that sense that the border adjustment task, the, the people the, the, who voted for Donald Trump, and if you look at the sort of demographics, you know, a lot of people who, you know, are in rural areas shop at Walmart and are going to see the prices of things uh, go through the roof when all these border adjustment tax from imports come in. But to the, to, the, to the point you were saying about foreign policy, Lindsey Graham today, and to talk about people who have been denounced by Donald Trump, I know I guess everybody has at this point, uh, Lindsey Graham today uh, was talking to <laughs> Hugh Hewitt. And he said, you know, I talked to Donald Trump on the phone today, and it was a lovely conversation. Hugh Hewitt said, you know, he's taking shots at you. He takes shots at everyone. Now we're pals, and here's why we're (laughs) pals. And he said, look, you know, Donald Trump said to me on the phone today, and this was today on Hugh Hewitt Show today. He said, you know, the military that you want is the one that I'm going to build. Don't you worry about it for one second. And, of course, we see this with this idea of, you know, a 300-ship Navy and expanding uh, military spending greatly. And, of course, what we've seen already is not only the failed uh, raid in Yemen, uh, a strike in Mosul that, that had we, appears to have had the largest civilian casualty count since America pulled out of Iraq, uh, apparently an attack in Aleppo that killed a lot of civilians, too. Uh, you know, and Lindsey Graham was saying that I have nothing but the utmost faith in Donald Trump that his uh, military so far and his military actions have made me happier than anything in the past eight years. Uh, that was a mm-hmm. quote, and I'm, I'm, I'm wow. you know, paraphrasing, but that's what he said. Uh, he said today, after his conversation with Donald Trump, you know, it, it strikes me that there's a lot, that we can't really trust him on this, and I know there was some, some excitement among anti-war libertarians or sort of more um, inward-looking, I don't want to say isolationist libertarians. Does the feeling that you get is that Donald Trump is going to be swallowed by the machine or be stewing, in your words, in the hot tub swamp <laughs> of Washington, D.C., and just become like Obama, like George W. Bush before him? Is that something that concerns you? It's like these these congressmen, they get up here and they get in the swamp. They think it's a hot tub. And they, they invite their whole family up. Hey, come on, honey, kids. The family the hot tub in the swamp. <laughs> Literally, when they move their family up here is when you know they've, they've totally integrated or gone native. But um, I, it's too early to tell. Really, it's too early to tell. But he trending hired in a bad Mick- direction? Well, you know, I hate to keep saying I was hopeful, but I was <laughs> – hopeful when he hired Mick Mulvaney to be the the head of OMB because uh, Mulvaney was always the guy that would offer amendments on the DOD appropriations bills Mm. to uh, 
cut money here or there, spending that the generals and the admirals didn't want, but the congressmen did. Like there was, there's a law, there's literally a law that says they have to, that regardless of what the admirals want, uh, the Navy has to keep, I think it's 11 aircraft carriers, regardless of whether that's really what they believe is best. Uh, and this probably has to do with the people that <laughs> supply parts to the aircraft carriers and put them in dry docks and whatnot. Sure. <laughs> but Mulvaney offered the amendment every year to reduce the, the minimum requirement from uh, 11 to 10. And um, it was one of those things Heritage Organization always scored against. And I, and I like those guys at Heritage, but, you know, they're, they're definitely not uh, against <laughs> global involvement in a, in a very large military. That was so a very wonderfully to, euphemistic way of saying it, by the way. I'm trying the best I can. I am You're doing a great job. Because I, I, know, I know you got millions of listeners on this podcast, but uh, <laughs> and Trump's listening too. So in any case, um, it's, you know, but... But what we've seen from the budget is actually, you know, probably the, the dream of the neocons for the for military spending, and it's it's uh, spending neutral, I guess. They cut as much as they as, as they add to the military. They cut elsewhere in domestic spending, but I would have loved to seen them put that put that toward deficit reduction. Quick question on and, the on the uh, spending on the they basically traded. I think it is. $60 billion of money for military department, uh, department of Homeland security and veterans affairs, uh, in, in return for 63 billion in cuts to agencies like the EPA and whatnot, 31%. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to accuse you of hanging out with Democrats all day long, uh, necessarily mm -hmm. congressman. <laughs> um, uh, however, what is your sense of the quickly, since you have to leave, we can't keep you here all night, but, uh, yeah. of, of uh, what is the realistic possibilities that any Congress that you are familiar with is going to cut 31 percent out of the Environmental Protection Agency uh, this year? You want me to give you odds? Yeah, I do. MIT. <laughs> I'm going on with 5%. <laughs> so we're going to get those military uh, boosts because Paul Ryan and everybody else there, not named you or Justin Amash, has been been bitching and moaning about the sequestration cuts forever. We, you know, we, we've never seen a military so cut to the bone as what we have right now. So they're going to jump all over that. And then they're not going to make all these steep agency cuts. That is the only way that the Trump budget is going to maintain the same levels of spending as the Obama budget. Do I have I that more or less? I, right? I didn't say they wouldn't. I said there was a 5% chance they would. <laughs> I'm an optimist. Uh, a 5% optimist. <laughs> Yes. Uh, uh, I wanted, I wanted, look, I wanted, here's here's the problem. I didn't realize this until I got to Congress, and I serve on three different committees. The EPA is in somebody's committee. There's a chairman of a committee that has jurisdiction over the EPA, and all the chairmen are Republican chairmen. And they have got – everybody's got a castle, and then they're always trying to fortify it. And every chairman thinks it's his job to make sure all the money keeps flowing to his committee. And they really don't want to give up money. It's like we've, we've spent $100 billion in Afghanistan rebuilding their infrastructure. And we're on the hook to spend another $10 billion. Now, 
90% of America would like to take that 10 billion and put it down toward our own infrastructure. But there's a chairman of a committee somewhere that's saying, by God, you're not touching my money that I'm giving to Afghanistan. And he's Republican. And that's the problem. Yeah, I mean, you've you've gotten to the core, I think, of populist economics and why Steve Bannon takes so much of this stuff from the, the right or the far right, what you want to call it in Europe, is that the economics of most of those parties are effectively left wing and they don't want money going to refugees, to new immigrants, et cetera. They want that money not in the coffers and they want it, you know, in healthcare. I have done I have gone around Europe, talked to all of these people and heads of parties, et cetera. And, you know, and this is basically Bannon's point, And he's reiterated it many times on his serious XM radio show and now in the White House is that we want that money, but we want it for infrastructure projects in America. We want it for health care. And don't just get just don't give it to other people. But we do want to tax and spend that money for our own people. That strikes me as the kind of essence of populist economics. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't have a problem with taking the money from overseas and spending it here. Um, the military money, though, that we're going to spend that's that's going to stimulate economies around the globe, I guarantee it. Uh, and so I don't see how that's America first, frankly. Let me uh, let me throw one uh, uh, last uh, question before you uh, we let you go here. You have authored a uh, terrific one sentence bill to get rid of the Department <laughs> of Education uh, uh, by 2018, if I have it, uh, have it correctly. So I was just working on a feature for reason about the possibilities for deregulation uh, during the Trump uh, presidency, which are actually pretty great. They're interesting to uh, watch. And one skeptic um, about your bill said eliminating the Department of Education actually doesn't do very much because the underlying legislation dates from 1965 and it authorizes the federal government to throw a bunch of money into local education systems, school systems. And until you go after the underlying legislation, there's got to be some agency out there that's overseeing the program and spending the money. So what is your response to this critique, sir? It's a fair charge. I had I had to decide whether to write a one sentence bill that I could get a lot of people to agree with or or a very involved bill that talks about what happens to all of that funding. And then people start disagreeing. But I thought, let's cut the head off the beast first and then we'll figure out how to distribute its parts. Um, But there are three things you could do with the funding, because my bill, it says the Department of Education shall terminate on December 31st, 2018. Eight words and two numbers. That's it. Um, that's the whole bill. And I thought if I keep it short, I could get some of these guys to read the bills. But uh, it, and and they still got people coming up to me asking me, "What's your bill say? What's it do?" <laughs> Anyways, but here's here's the reason that charge that they've they've leveled at me is legitimate. Is I don't say what to do with all of those programs, and they do like the individuals with disabilities that in a different name, predates the Department of Education, a lot of these grants and stuff. So I've said there there are three things you could do after you eliminate the Department of Education. By the way, it's for, what I'm eliminating is Betsy DeVos's job, which is what the liberals wanted me to do. But, <laughs> um, they, and I introduced the bill the day the Senate confirmed her, uh, literally, while they were voting on her. But it eliminates 4,500 other jobs in Washington, D.C. that are an average salary of $105,000 a piece. So you're talking about about half a billion dollars in salaries that I get rid of. Okay, that 
unequivocally the bill does. But what to do with the grants and whatnot? You could either send things like Pell Grants to uh, the Treasury to administer, for instance, and student loans to the Treasury. Uh, Head Start's already administered by uh, Health and Human Services, and the school lunch program's already administered by the USDA. You could either assign those programs to other departments and totally eliminate this department, which it gets you back to about where you were before Jimmy Carter put the department in place. Or you could block grant this stuff back to the states. Every state has a Department of Education, and they can do a better job administering these programs. Or third option, my favorite, is get rid of the funding for these programs and let the states fund the programs, let the states collect the money and distribute the money within their states, because there's no magic about sending the money to Washington, D.C. and then begging to get it back and and then agreeing to jump through hoops in order to qualify for that money. Just let the states collect it and distribute it, and that would be the constitutional thing. Yeah. Well, Congressman Nassi, I I appreciate you joining us. Uh, We will not hold you any longer, sir. Thank you for, uh, for playing ball. And uh, hey, for, for chopping it up. Hey, thanks for having me here, uh, Michael. Can you can you show up on time next time, please? No, no I can't. I, <laughs> I'm usually late for congressmen just to show my contempt for the process in Washington D.C. <laughs> but you're one of the good ones, so I did hey. I admit to an error this time. The contempt is warranted. Trust. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, guys. You, we'll see you. Boom. Congressman Massey. Congressman Massey. Just, just dropping it there. Proud right. proud job killer. Destroying yeah, jobs. Yeah, destroying jobs. I got to say, you know, I, I disagree with you. Know, there's a certain amount of respect <laughs> that you show, contrary to what I just said, for the congressman <laughs> uh, and not uh, be a jerk to him. But, you know, the, the thing about populist economics and the disappointment that I think that you see amongst uh, some of the, the Freedom Caucus members and amongst people who kind of put a little bit of hope in Donald Trump from a libertarian-ish uh, position is that this has been Donald Trump's kind of economic policy for a long time. He's always been liberal, self-identified as a liberal, and the combination of that type of liberalism and nationalism gets you the European far right. And it's effectively what it is, and it is something that, um, I, as I was saying, I've talked to a million people over there about, and, you know, when we thought this kind of unicorn voter... And I met a few of them and said, well, it still might be a unicorn. And I'm meeting a few outliers of those people that I met in New Hampshire and Iowa during the primary and the caucuses was that, you know, these guys that are vacillating between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders probably don't exist. It's a great media invention. It's like, well, you know, it's it's hard to say. There's a lot of kind of research on this. And I met a few of these people. But in Europe, keep in mind that the far right parties all across Europe are sucking voters from the Social Democratic Party is primarily, and as you see this in Sweden, most of the people are jumping from Social Democrats to the Sweden Democrats. In Sweden, for instance, this is happening also in France, a number of people going from the old Socialist Party from the days of, you know, uh, Francois Hollande and Ségolène Royal and, and, and going over to Front National. And we did a story on this recently, especially in factory towns, etc. So it's not, the, it's not a media construct of the 2016 election. It happens across the globe. And Unfortunately, uh, for people who don't believe in this sort of economic policy, this is what we, we're getting in Washington, D.C. right now. I wrote a piece for Reason uh, a couple issues back about the anti-WTO free traders because it's a narrow little raft, but it's an interesting one we here. We just had one on. <laughs> uh, we just had one on, exactly. And I quote him in the in the piece, and, and he – 
uh, like a lot of things, I mean, his best friend in Congress is Justin Amash, who uh, we should have on the show next. Um, and uh, I, I, if I remember so correctly, vote for uh, Maxine Waters. Just wanna- <laughs> Talk to her about uh, the James the James Brown wig. Yeah, or they or they the CIA and crack. Well, that too. She was into that. Who remembers the uh, Prince song from the Black Album uh, called oh, Bob man. George? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, like nope. A, Go get that wig. No, no, the reddish yeah. brown one. Yeah, incredible. Not, and not about either the columnist for the New York Post or the uh, no. philosopher. At Princeton, it's not about Rod, either of those Robert Georges, but continue. Also true. No, there's this uh, there's this uh, sense of libertarianism. Daniel Hannan has this in a very eloquent British poncy way British, of, British of like, yeah. uh, you know, Brexit's all about reclaiming sovereignty. And it's just the WTO is, is terrible for sovereignty and all these kinds of things. WTO is kind of a small little organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it it's remarkably efficient in the way that it adjudicates uh, trade disputes while continuing to the project of lowering barriers and tariffs and terriers and yeah. barriffs and all those guys, <laughs> uh, which is a good thing. And so, I mean, it's the ball is in the court uh, with the Thomas Massey's of the world when it comes to train policies. Do you think hitching your wagon to Donald Trump that all that delicious sovereignty is going to also get you the kind of incredible – uh, tariff reducing that we've seen in the last seven decades. Well, you know, Godspeed. Let's let's see. Yeah, how that I was plays too out. busy uh, sucking down uh, uh, Westland American single malt whiskey. This is really good. It's delicious. It's by really, the way. Where did this come really from? Really I mean, it tastes- so this is. I I feel terrible. Yeah. Because I don't I don't know. You brought booze without being who, prepared for the yeah. shout out. Oh my god! I, I Next shout them out. episode for the shout out on that one because that's it's, a it's a huge it's terrible huge but this problem. Camille. It's it's terrible and I'm so sorry. The whiskey's Please great. Remind You're me. You're terrible. Really good. Yeah. Yes. No. This American. <laughs> no. I'm saying I am terrible. American <laughs> single malt Westland whiskey. Uh, potent, wonderful, oh, it's good. woodsy. I, I want to. I want to give them a shout out next time for sure. Yeah, so we got to get that. Make sure you bring that with you. Remind me so I can shout yeah. you out. But on the border adjustment tax, the tariff, yeah. um, the comparison that the uh, congressman made to the flat tax, um, fair that, tax, the fair, the fair tax. tax, the fair tax, is flat it, tax, similar. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Um, no, not really. No. Uh, nope. You know, it really. Uh, if that were the only tax we were paying. Would <laughs> be the border adjustment tax. Be like, All right, you know, more money in your bank account. The rise in cost of goods at Walmart maybe would not be as noticeable. But but uh, the only thing I have to say to that is, uh, I, Congressman, you were very very sweet to come on. You're very funny. Uh, and you're absolutely wrong about that. So, so there's really not much to say other than there's no comparison whatsoever. It's just, it's a mistake from beginning to end, and it will harm the American consumer from beginning to end. He's super funny. And just to 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 end the our Massey uh, uh, section, um, hashtag Sassy with Massey is a thing that exists on Twitter. Is that it a does, thing? It does. I don't it like does. that thing. I, I, I thought that was I, about Alex Massey, our friend from Scotland. Can you do a Scottish uh, Alex Massey accent? Uh, from, from Scotland? <laughs> I can't ask me, Alex Massey. Uh, <laughs> Alex doesn't talk, he's very posh. I don't like Sassy with Massey. Yeah. Massey is uh, is great, and for all listeners out there, a great Twitter feed to follow, and just an interesting guy. Uh, has He's the one who's trying to legalize you know, raw milk. Uh, so that we could all choke yeah. <laughs> to death yeah. on, on the yeah. on the nasty stuff. Uh, just very very funny um, uh, person and independent minded uh, thinker out there. And I I 
cling to the beliefs and it's self-interested to some degree, but that there's a uh, cadre of people in Congress right now that are super interesting to follow. And he's right there in the very short list. Along and, with and, and it was what I was trying to get at with the kind of comment question uh, about, you know, if you're the guy that's trying to make sure that uh, Americans have access to poisonous raw milk uh, <laughs> and you're, you're that kind of libertarian, like that kind of rock rib libertarian, you know, what is it like to be an ideological person in a post-ideological Republican Party? And, you know, he is an ideological guy, but at the same time, he's still very safe. He's still he still, you know, has to govern and has to deal with the, the president and the president's minions. And I, th- I think he was a little guarded about he, some of that stuff. He made a he made a choice and it, him and, and Amash are like super good friends, but they choose different routes to this. Hmm. Amash is clearly like leading the anti-Trump brigades within the, the House of Representatives among Republicans. Yeah. There's no and one and, who's coming close yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Massey endorsed Trump. Um, and this is this goes way back. Amash never did. He never got on on the Trump train. Massey was sort of selectively trying to steer him in that direction. Rand Paul's kind of playing a similar game, too, of of yeah. mixing his criticisms with like, no, I, I think I can convince Trump on foreign policy. I think he's wrong about well, that. Well, but I then, want him to try. Yeah, and, then, and also to point out, um, <laughs> did Rand Paul also softened a lot of his positions on foreign policy when he himself was running for president. Yeah. And after Iowa, and I interviewed Rand Paul uh, the morning after the Iowa caucuses when um, he had a you know, decent showing relative to his previous showings. And he was not a happy man when I asked him about some of the softening of uh, of these kind of core libertarian issues when he's threading the needle in a way. Uh, he was a, it was not a friendly uh, response. In, so. fair, in fairness, he's a prickly so-and-so he is who, a prickly guy. especially with a libertarian base, he's pissed off and he's told this to me in person, privately and publicly, um, that, you know, he felt like uh, – that team libertarian always liked his dad and never liked him. I mean, he didn't put it like in that, oh, in, that in that kind of way. Daddy I'm, issues. I'm, no, it wasn't in a daddy issue ways, <laughs> but he just didn't understand. Walk it, it back, Matt. He didn't understand <laughs> why he was always given shit uh, to a degree by libertarians and always has been. But it's, he's playing a different game. He's he's trying to be the senator of a whole state as opposed yeah. to the ideologue of someone the horrifyingly from gerrymandered, gerrymandered district, kind of thing. which is specifically uh, constructed to get every lunatic. And I think it ropes around <laughs> Alex Jones's house. It goes down, loops around Alex Jones's front yard and comes back. I mean, Jamie Kirchick's house. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, his his best friend. Um, but yeah, that was that was that was interesting, and it's and it's also unfortunately I walked in when he was. You were asking a very good question about, um, you know, the the Steve Bannon uh, coming in and Donald Trump saying, "Look, I don't actually care about healthcare that much." If you he's not even really telegraphing that. You don't have to read the sort of subtext. It's like the Witchtelman movie Barcelona when a guy say, he turns to his, his cousin and says, "You know, they always talk about the subtext of movies, but they never talk about what's above it. What is that?" <laughs> and his cousin says, "It's the text." But that's kind of the thing is this is the text here is that when he says, "You know what? You don't vote for this. No more healthcare. We're tabling it. We're not going to we're not going to rewrite this. We're going to try it again. We're done." We're just going to get a list out of this, and we're going to punish the people who have been traitors, enemies of the people. That, that was before. It was the, the media and probably the American people who didn't vote for him. And now it's the people who didn't vote for his unbelievably flabby and ill-conceived health care bill. And, 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 and less popular than Obamacare by a lot. Yeah. More well, unpopular. Speaking, speaking of conspiracy theories, 
Um, Here he goes. This nice. is uh, good. well, yeah, yeah, Church's yeah. chicken, kind of sorta, kind of sorta. Uh, we we have Alex chicken. Alex Jones, a Alex Jones apologizing for PizzaGate. We don't need to comment on that. It's just funny. It's but you know what? There is one comment to make about. Oh. I talked to Alex Jones at length, and he did hedge a little bit on PizzaGate, but then he went full force and was talking about how uh, Hillary Clinton was ordering hot dogs. You know, hot dogs. Is, <laughs> Michael, you know what hot dogs is for? You know what that's all about? Hot dogs. I'm what, like, no, you what know, deli- they, what and he for? said, delicious, succulent hot dogs. And there was like dips. That's what he thought they were. Uh, oh, totally serious. Fa- totally okay. serious. Alex Jones had a conversation with me. The thing that nobody's pointing wait, wait, out about this. Can we slow it down a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he yeah. was suggesting yeah, that Hillary sure. Clinton. It was code. A 70-year-old grandmother. Well, not that she wanted the hot dogs, but that she was signaling something about Comet Pizza's molestation. Wait, wait, wait. Comet Pizza sells hot dogs? No, you're trying to make sense of somebody who has a mental say, illness. They, but I was going to say, if they <laughs> sell hot dogs. Debating somebody on the subway. If I they mean, did sell hot dogs. No, there was, a, there was an damning. email. I actually looked it up. There was an email uh, in the Podesta emails or something about like, you know, we're going to get these hot dogs. Uh, for like some event they're having, and then when it comes through Jones's filter, he's like, you know, they talk about the succulent hot dogs. I'm like, what are you talking? What are you talking? I was like, what? and th- th- this interview is all me going, what? It's like literally you can't even use it. Cause I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, Pete- and he kind of pulled it back. But the one thing nobody pointed out about this, and I think it's an important thing, uh, is I the potential of litigation. Yeah. Because on 60 Minutes on Sunday, there was a piece. It was about fake news, and it was actually about Pizzagate. Mm-hmm. And they had that that um, that mouth breather, Mike Cernovich, who is oh. like he. It, it's like he looks like a gorilla, and he's got a book called Gorilla Style. He's this like awful guy. That's racist. And they talk. He's white. <laughs> they, they talk Doesn't about, matter. They, and they they're talking about Pizzagate, and then right after that. Um, you know, he, he right before that he apologizes in a way that made me sense that that the guys from Comet Pizza had lawyers that said, you know, you got a pretty good case against this guy for you know ruining your life and ruining your business, potentially people, you know, coming in and shooting up the place and protesting in front of it all the time. One thing that I think has gotten lost in the Comet Pizza commentary is that it's kind of one of the best places in Washington D.C. That's great. I used to go it's, there after. So yeah. you you are both part of the conspiracy. I mean, the succulent, succulent hot yeah. dogs. <laughs> yeah, you would. You would be a part of that. Well, I was actually talking about a different a different conspiracy. Yeah, they're all um, good. Because that, that one's old. They're all fun. The, the one that's interesting yeah. is Russia. Russia is the most important conspiracy. And we, we have two sort of things happening right now. Today, um, the... Uh, there were the revelations, uh, as the Washington Post put it in a headline, that the Trump administration sought to block Sally Yates from testifying to Congress on Russia. Um, and the uh, the attribution for this um, strongly worded headline um, are, is a sequence of letters, um, specifically one from the Justice Department. Um, and I suppose, I guess, some communications that took place before uh, between Yates and the Justice Department in which someone at Justice said to her, um, that, hey, you know, some of the things that you might be asked to talk about when you go to testify in front of the uh, the House uh, Intelligence Committee um, might be protected because you, as a lawyer at the Justice Department, were having conversations with a lawyer at the White House. Some of that may be sort of privileged in some way, shape, or form, in which case you need the pr- permission of the White House. She don't need extra permission from us. That's at least what the letter says. But the the notion here is that in throwing up this potential obstacle in the context of this letter, um, that the Trump administration was somehow, apparently indirectly, uh, preventing Yates from testifying in Congress. What was the headline? The, the headline is, 
that the Trump administration sought to block Sally Yates from testifying to Congress on Russia. And the actual, I saw the headline uh, yeah. today, but the actual text does not bear that out. It the, just actual, says, the actual text is says, like pretty, pretty lame. I mean, it's... And, and, and is it true also that some of these conversations that were probably privileged um, or might have been privileged and she couldn't talk about, is that actually right? Because well, if it is right, then that's just a reminder. It's certainly, it's certainly it the like case that these are conversations. These are certainly it's certainly the case that these are conversations between lawyers. And in that respect, some aspect of these conversations may be privileged in some way, shape, or form. But the specific question I think that she was asking was for anything that was not um, confidential. Um, that she be able to talk about those things and obtain permission from the White House. In fact, the letters that her lawyers later sent. Each There were two, a pair of letters. The second letter suggested that, hey, White House, if you don't respond and say you have an issue with this, we are going to presume that you're fine with her testifying and talking to Congress. Um, the, the thing about this strongly worded headline is there doesn't seem to be any indication like in the article itself or in the letters that there is anyone at the White House who actually said, yeah, we're going to stop her from testifying. What we know is that uh, a gentleman who has made other headlines recently, uh, Mr. Nunez, uh, actually canceled the hearing that was supposed to take place with her. So that was canceled for one reason or another. Um, but it's not obvious that the Trump administration had anything to do with that. And it's, it, it's, shock, it's not shocking to me, but this just sort of slippery – the slipperiness of the headline – um, the sort of lameness with which it is reinforced with respect to the letter from the Justice Department um, is a little disconcerting. Uh, and I suppose it's just consistent with kind of the standard, what is becoming a hell of a lot more standard, just the adversarial positioning of like, mainstream media publications as they cover the Trump administration, like taking a particularly hard line almost straight out of the gate uh, perhaps in order to sort of get to the story first and to hit it as hard as possible. There's a, but um, it's just like this attribution of nefarious intention to everything, even the most kind of ordinary qualification. We talked last uh, Friday <clears throat> about confirmation bias and motivated reasoning. There's a uh, about uh, like last month or sometime in the, in the last three or four weeks. It was you know International Pie Day, like three point one four. You know, mm-hmm. whatever. We could the stop there. Is. Yeah, everyone Thanks. knows. Yeah. Um, and it got me to thinking about the movie. Did you ever see Darren Aronofsky's Pie? Yeah. Uh, one yeah. of the greatest, I think, 90s, uh, yeah, 90s. Uh, uh, Very movie um, uh, about a brilliant mathematician who kind of loses it as he's looking for all these patterns in the world. It might be some orthodox Judaism uh, kind of like <laughs> pattern of something. And okay. then like the Fibonacci curve and this. And he's didn't gonna, know, Fibonacci? Whatever. Fibonacci. Didn't know that it was an anti-Semitic movie, but go ahead. No, it was kind of Philo more than anti, but it was, it was unclear. Um, and uh, and he, and Wall Street. And he's like, he's going to find the the, the the secret number and all this. And there's a great uh, scene in this where he's talking to his mentor and he is a brilliant mathematical mind, but he's also popping a lot of drugs. And at some point, he puts a drill in his head. It's kind of yeah. yeah. Um, um, but anyways, um, and he's talking to his mentor about like in, in in a very kind of feverish way. And and the guy like has a great one minute section. It's like Max, and he's like a Hungarian or something. Max, you 
You look at everything. If you look for the patterns in nature and you look for this equation, you will see it everywhere you look. But that's not mathematics. That is numerology. Mm. And I think that there's something really true about that in terms of the way that people are looking at the Russia story in particular. When you are like, that's all you're primed to do, to look at and see, you're going to notice things that you never pay attention to before. Like banal memoranda. I mean, it sometimes can be a good thing, too. Yes, it could. You can see it with fresh eyes. Uh, you can you can, you can, can pay attention to things that should be normally paid attention to, and they're not for whatever mm-hmm. reason. But also, you are, just like the story that we talked about here, uh, uh, you know, six weeks ago, about how Trump was allegedly firing all of the ambassadors everywhere in, in the universe, and it was going to leave us short on diplomats. It turns out he did nothing really out of the ordinary here. People are so motivated on this. How many times a week at the this point, and I've kind of gone to the other side. I got to, I got to admit about this, uh, about the Russian thing. I, um, I now am consuming the motivated semi-conspiracy uh, theory, like the long Twitter threads from your Seth Abramsons of the world and everybody else. Yeah. Like three days ago, everyone decided in that in that like Louise Mensch part of the universe that um, Mike Flynn. Michael Flynn had uh, flipped and was going to be mm-hmm. going to yeah. testify for the government. The longest, you know, uh, uh, Twitter threads you've ever seen in your life outside of my dude looks like the Babadook, <laughs> which I hope both of you looked at. Sure, since the last day, which yeah. is phenomenal. It's the best. Uh, yeah. Um, but like, you know, a 50, like 50 threaded thread about how what this p- could possibly mean. And then like two or three days later, the one source who had suggested it that this happened, walked it back. And so, like, it, it erased overnight. Yeah, I mean, by the way, here's a good rule of thumb mm. for Twitter is that if you're numbering your tweets, you need a girlfriend. <laughs> uh, or just, like, something, like, just a, a bit of pornography. No, matter, whatever. no matter your gender, you no need a girlfriend. No matter your gender, he's like, yeah, it's yeah. just a lady yeah. will help you stop numbering your tweets. This is true. I'm looking at you, Jeet here. Jeet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, no, stop numbering your tweets. Uh, but here, the thing it's about... It's a really good euphemism, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I'm such a Jeet here. What are you in the night? Yeah. I'm going to go number my tweets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought it was Jeet here. It's also good. <laughs> I got Jeeted that here. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's a little, it's a little much there with the numbered tweets. It's like, dude, you know what? You got a you got a word processor handy. At Write least, a fucking article. At least he always, numbering your tweets and clogging my timeline. He at least has the uh, the good uh, manners to start. His number one is always like, I have a few thoughts about Norman Podhortz and <laughs> masturbation. <laughs> yeah, I, lo- I love the start. Like, I have a few thoughts. Such, like, a, such a tease. Go. Such a tease. But you know, in the in the Russia conspiracies. You know, it's easier to believe conspiracies when the other actor is a, a conspirator. And mm. we have to remember that is that, you know, it, after the Church Commission, sure. we, the CIA conspiracies got a little bit um, heft. They get a little heft to them. They get a little. Sure. This is real. You know, you actually have Frank Church with a silenced pistol showing it to people and showing, you know, a, you know, poison clamshells that were supposed to kill Fidel Castro. There's a point that, you know, this week. Poison clamshells. I mean, how many people. Uh, that were opponents of the Putin regime, uh, you know, fell ill in the past month. Or in the case of uh, a former uh, uh, deputy in the Duma mm-hmm. was walking on the streets. And we have a video of this, by the way, which was which was released uh, uh, by the security services and, and covered by the Ukrainian uh, national media of a former uh, Russian uh, member of the Duma 
walking down the street in Kiev and getting shot in the back of the head and killed. And then the killer is killed by his bodyguard. It's a pretty amazing video. The guy in the bodyguard shot himself and is down in a very kind of Ronin style is on the ground and empties his clip into the guy who later died at a hospital. But this this Russian decided to go to Ukraine. He opposed uh, the the annexation of Crimea and he opposed the intervention in Ukraine. And uh, his country of birth and the country that he served in the Duma became unlivable for him. So he moved to Ukraine for, you know, the closest proximity for safety. And he was murdered on the street. You know, uh, there was a, a, uh, a 60 Minutes uh, piece a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but a guy who I met last year, actually, who has been poisoned twice, who is a, is a, a democracy advocate in Russia, twice, two times. And the second time, they couldn't find anything in his system. And, you know, all the symptoms, I knew I'd been poisoned. I knew I'd been poisoned. There's something horrible. The doctors are like, God, what is this? They finally did some sort of stomach scraping and sent it to a botanical garden in London in which they discovered something. Because, by the way, the Russians created something during the Cold War in the 70s, a special lab to find toxins that were untraceable. You know, remember Georgi Markov, uh, the Bulgarian dissident who was killed with a poison tip umbrella in London. Uh, They find this thing in his stomach scrapings. That is some Chinese herb that is toxic and untraceable, and he's recovering now. And is a he's a fantastic guy. And I met him uh, around this time last year. And he walks with a cane now. He's a very young guy um, because the first one did nerve damage. Uh, and he said, "I'm going back. My kids and my 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 wife are here in Washington D.C. I'm going back." This is the conspirator. So look. Uh, There is confirmation bias. There are people out there looking for the stories that connect the Trump administration. But what makes them believable is that we're dealing with the Kremlin, which is one of the most sinister actors on the world stage today. And I think that what what happens is that the kind of obverse of the confirmation bias types are the people that are so outraged by this ridiculous coverage. And I, and I do agree. A lot of it's really ridiculous that they have gone to great lengths to be, uh, you know, Russophilic and Kremlinophilic, and they will defend the things that this rancid regime in Moscow does in there. It is undeniable at this point there, you know, Sergei Magnitsky's lawyer fell out of a window. What? Three weeks ago. Happened to fall off the roof or out of a window. It's like the number of people, the body count here is like that Clinton body count email from the 90s, but real. <laughs> you know, and that's a bit disturbing. So, so it's up to 43 is what you're talking about? Oh, God. I, I mean, geez, I don't know. But I think I made a Parker Dozier's bait shop reference once on the show, <laughs> which is only for somebody who followed the Arkansas project of the American Spectator in the 90s. But, you know, this is something that, that they are. There is, you know, hacking of of John Podesta's emails, hacking, phishing, spear phishing attacks. There is most certainly um, other entry points into uh, systems that are weak. We get, you know, and, you know, it doesn't help that Edward Snowden is in Russia. And my my opinion on that is not what it sounds like in a lot of ways. But, you know, these are guys that are trying to to, to upend uh, American democracy. Can, uh, can uh, I ask you whether you have followed the Devin Nunez stuff? I have. Close enough. I read Eli's piece the other day. and mm-hmm. I, I, That's not close in, enough. In defense of uh, Devin Nunez? Uh, well, it was about his visit to the White House, right. which actually ended up causing Devin Nunez a lot of problems. Yes. Yeah. Um, there were two two visits to the White House. Yeah. One, one Can... visit to the White House, which was uh, completely secret before um, the revelations, before he visited the White House again to sort of deliver these insights, which first he shared with the press. It seemed saying, look, the someone has been 
The intelligence community has, in fact, been monitoring the Trump administration. There doesn't seem to be any law breaking, but there was the wide dissemination of various pieces of information involving people who are connected to the Trump campaign. Yeah, not the administration, but associates. Right. Yeah. His associates of the administration Roger for Stone. seemingly no for seemingly no just um, sort of legal reason. Um, and he, he did emphasize repeatedly that this there didn't seem to be any laws broken. Um, and went on to say that he got this information from various sources. As it turns out, one of those sources is someone in the White House, Mm -hmm. uh, and he had to stop by the White House prior to giving this press conference, uh, some days prior to get that information, and then, of course, visited famously now, notoriously perhaps, visited the White House again after uh, giving that press conference to brief the president uh, on information that perhaps he may have gotten from the president. Can I ask you both a question? I mean, this is just a a pretty straightforward one, is that, you said, you know, monitoring this stuff appears to be legal, but with, for no reason or with no reason. Is it if Roger Stone, who might, I think is the associate that often comes up, and we don't know that for a fact, but I suspect it's probably Stone, uh, Carter Page, Definitely. and Paul Manafort. Those are the, that's the, that's the triumvirate of uh, goofballs, basically. If Stone is acknowledging that he has direct message, direct messaged on Twitter with Guccifer 2.0, yeah. which all intelligence officials and anybody with half a brain believes is a Russian uh, FSB cutout, mm-hmm. uh, if he if he's you know talking to him, now this and, was the hacker who carried out, the, yeah, uh, or the, claims the to carry cat- out hacks. and 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 have have leaked this, right? And he is uh, on on you know the other hand, I mean, Roger. Kimball. I love the fact that we're in a p- political moment. We're talking taking Roger Stone seriously. It's completely insane. But if if he's doing that on 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 one hand, Paul Manafort um, is working with the the, the stooge uh, in in um, the in Ukraine who's mowing down people in Maidan Square. And, you know, you also have Stone saying, here's the stuff that's going to come out on WikiLeaks. It's going to be a big bombshell. And he's like, I just guessed. It was just not. And then a couple of days later, it does. I mean, you know, from the FBI standpoint, probable cause. Oh, yeah. yeah, No, look. And he's an associate. I mean, but you say without reason, seems like there'd be some pretty good probable cause there. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, in, certainly in that so you're particular, you're wrong. in that particular, no, no, look, I'm, I'm actually that's saying that's, that's totally what Nunez healthy. said. That's not what I said. I don't know what, yeah. what he was referring oh, to. Oh, I see. I see. I see. Yeah. I see. He, Nunez a, said that there was no cause I'm for drinking. this surveillance. Did yeah, you guys see the fine. reporting from today um, about uh, Manafort and Cyprus and I think something in the double digit number of bank accounts that are under surveillance there? Yeah. No. Nah. Yeah. I saw, I, I didn't read, I mean, this, we see this, I saw Giuliani and Turkey, um, of course, Mike, uh, Mike Flynn in Turkey, Paul Manafort in the scumbaggery um, in uh, Ukraine. And then you have a president who comes in and says something that I actually agreed with. He said, you know, look, if you work in government, don't use this as a stepladder to some huge contract gig where you can have the something group, the this group, the that group, and clean up. And we're going to put a five-year ban, 10-year ban, all of these things. Well, what if it's called the Cent- the Institute for Democracy? Yeah. <laughs> the, in- the Center the in- for International the, Affairs. The Center for International Awesomeness. Yeah. Uh, stuff like that. You have that that administration who says something that, like, look, you know, maybe there's some points against it. I don't know. Make them to me, and, and I'll make a decision. But on its face, it seems logical. And I don't like the fact that people come in and, and you know, are bought and sold that quickly. And then you have these people that are associates and close confidants of the government and the administration who are, you know, doing so much FARA work, um, some of which isn't FARA work because it's not declared. FARA is the foreign 
Agent Registration Act, which, by the way, if you want to have fun, I've had some fun with this. I read a thing for the Washington Post one time about uh, a a consulting group who mistakenly included a document in a FARA filing that they weren't supposed to include. Mm. Um, It was called Brown Lloyd James, and the Brown in that is Peter Brown, the former manager of the Beatles, uh, who used to who run? Called the, and said, "You can make it okay. You can make it okay. He can make he. It, the thing that Peter Brown can do is get John and Yoko out of some immigration problem, and also, uh, you know, agitate on behalf of Muammar Gaddafi, which was his <laughs> later in life uh, uh, gig. But go to the Pharaoh website; it's thepharaoh.gov, or just just Google it, and you can look at the people in the United States that have to file registrations." By law, if they are working on behalf of a foreign government. Like There's everybody in the yeah. McCain campaign working on behalf yeah. of the Republic of Georgia. Well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I might have gone to Georgia with one of those people. Yeah. So I, I might have. I had a couple. I'm just of- saying I might have. I'm not saying I did. <laughs> I, I had a couple, a couple of boxes I wanted to tick before we got the hell out of here. Um, the massive protests across Russia uh, over the weekend yeah. um, are, are probably worth noting since we're we're on the subject of Russia. Um, I suspect you gentlemen have at least paid some attention to this. Quite a bit, yeah. Um, a, hundred, a hundred odd cities in Russia, as I, as That's I the understand it, yeah. um, participated in these protests. 10,000 plus people in Russia, more than a thousand people arrested. Um, yeah. And what, who may, what wow. may be perhaps the... Um, sort of leading opposition candidate to Vladimir Putin. Uh, the polling there doesn't seem to suggest that he is uh, yeah. particularly competitive, but well, the protests yeah. are meaningful, and I don't know Nobody's how you competitive can trust them. in those races. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how you can trust the, uh, the polling there. But in either case, I mean, this is a, this is a pretty this is a pretty big deal, I think. It is. Um, to see this happen. And, and I mean, you know, to take a look at, at Russia, we've seen, like, what, three recessions over the course mm-hmm. of the past, what, 10 mm-hmm. Not even quite ten years, perhaps. Yeah. Um, the economy is in the shitter. Uh, the graft that is taking place in the corridors of power all all across the Kremlin um, is at just this epic levels. Sure. Um, I suspect that Vladimir Putin may, in fact, um, and this is not only my suspicion; it's it's been been uh, speculated about by many people. But I, I certainly suspect and would not be surprised to discover that Vladimir Putin is among the richest human beings on planet Earth, if not the and richest. Dimitri Medvedev, and which is, which is right what, behind what him. Uh, Navalny's yeah. report on Dmitry Medvedev, who is the, who is the fake uh, 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 president that was that interregnum so he could come again. The reset. Yeah, president. who has, you know, boats, uh, dachas, mansions, etc. And that was... That was the report. But there are a couple of really interesting things about this. Really, really, truly interesting things that, unfortunately, you know, the media who's been covering this by and large hasn't pointed out. They do it through the prism of Donald Trump and, you know, his protests and a couple of things. The first one is that if you go back to 2000, 2001, um, I was doing this for the project that I'm working on now. And you notice that everybody at the same time says in 2000, 2001, sclerotic economy, it's going to fail. It's they just can't sustain it. They don't, you know, foresee one hundred and forty dollars a barrel oil. But still, sclerotic economy, the, the, the sort of superstructure of the economy is broken and it's going to cause a lot of problems for Putin. It hasn't. And we see the same thing in Venezuela. It's basically a rump state that is 
you know, somewhere between the DRC and, and Angola because it has oil like Angola. And it's just – it's and they manage to keep going because they control the levers of power. They can control the institutions. They control the judiciary. And they control the media. So that's a big thing that people talk about. The broken economy of Russia doesn't really matter and hasn't really mattered. It's almost the corollary on the other side that we used to believe that when we opened up economies, as Milton Friedman once said – you know, political openness will follow. That actually turned out not to really be true either if you look at places like China and you look at places like Russia too, which is, you know, has a 10% flat tax or a 12% flat tax and is not, you know, a socialist economy in that sense. That's the first thing. The second thing, which I think is really, really, really big about this is that we, we, sh we saw Navalny's network like we've never seen before. What you would have never seen, and you saw in 2012, these massive street protests, they were all in Moscow. There was a big center in Moscow. Now we see this all over. There were protests in Dagestan. You would never have gotten protests in Dagestan. And, like, and this is, I think, a testament in a way to Navalny's network. That's the second thing. That's what's really interesting about it. The third thing is what they're protesting. The way I think that they survive and they can actually bat this away is the fact that this is about graft and corruption. Mm -hmm. It's not about Putin. Right. When Putin comes on television and says, you know what he says? You know what he will say? He hasn't said it yet, but I guarantee you tomorrow you'll see it. We oppose graft and corruption too. We really, it's gotten out of control. Navalny is a stooge of the West and the National Endowment for Democracy, and he's not to be listened to. But look, we hear you, and we're going to crack down on this, and we're going to arrest some people. I mean, they arrest Mikhail Kordakovsky in the past, put him in prison, and said he's corrupt. He's stealing money from state oil networks. So this is actually an easy get out for Putin in one way is that it's not about him. So I think that these protests don't presage something larger in the sense that Putin's going to be like, oh, my God, they're after me, and I, I have to ignore it. Russian television ignored it. They didn't actually cover it. But if it does come up, they actually do have a bit of an out this time. But it's an interesting, interesting time because Navalny is a very charismatic guy. He's young. He's handsome. He's well-spoken. He is brave as all get out. And he was just sentenced today to 15 j uh, days in jail, mm -hmm. which is basically what they can do for him. And they arrested, you know, journalists, American journalists who's working for The Guardian. They arrested him. And the American journalist said this, said um, he speaks Russian. He said to the Russian police officer when they're all in this holding cell, he said, what what am I being arrested for? <laughs> the Russian policeman gave him credit for this kind of funny. Came over and said, I don't know. You may have killed Kennedy. I don't know. <laughs> it's like that is the most Russian thing <laughs> I have ever amazing. heard in my life. It's the Soviet Union without ideology. Don't uh, uh, discount the effect of, and I'm not accusing you, but just in general uh, of uh, just accuse him. Uh, no, I'm not <laughs> accuse. Accuse it's that radio. Dude has forgotten. Do it. Uh, more about uh, the stuff than I will ever learn. But um, the effect of having uh, state uh, control over most media, not all, hugely not, um, because. This thing, we are more aware of the widespread nature of these protests than most Russians are. Yeah, mm. it's true. Um, mm. I, yeah. A friend of mine in Prague um, who moved there uh, around the time that I did and never uh, escaped, <laughs> uh, uh, he sent me a thing uh, two years ago, um, frantic kind of uh, email or Facebook post or something, um, because 
in Prague, and this is the horrifying to me, Russians have or Russian affiliated companies have bought up a ton of media, TV and, and uh, newspapers and all these kind of things in a place where in 1990 it, it would be impossible mm -hmm. to find a place that was more anti-Russian or anti-Soviet outside of maybe – you know, Warsaw and the Baltics. I mean, just and like, Victor or like your guys, um, Victor Orban and Fidesz, who were impressive back in the early nineties. They were incredible now, back then, or now Russian the stooges, basically puppet, puppet. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, but he said uh, he, the the reason why he was so freaked out. My American uh, friend from college, who was still living in Prague, is that he happened to walk in, stumble upon huge protests in the tens of thousands. Uh, and I think they're even shaking their keys, which is a real Czech uh, way. They did that during the Velvet Revolution of saying, uh, I forget what the, the, the illusion is, but like it's time to change the locks on the mm. on the castle or something. Um, but that he only discovered the protest by walking into it. Mm. And it was massive. And he hasn't seen anything like this in, in, in 15 years. And there was an absolute media blackout everywhere. And he was just discombobulated. He doesn't follow the news that closely, but just like, hey, look, mm -hmm. can you spread this out there? And I can imagine there's a lot of people in Russia feeling the same thing of like you either saw it or you knew somebody and you communicated on Facebook or whatever. But the uh, the total amount of media is not showing that. And that's a weirdly uh, dislocated. You know, in, in one final comment on this is is that, you know, I really, really want to underscore uh, this point because uh, you know I heard this a lot I've done a lot of Venezuela stuff um, you know been to Venezuela know a lot of uh, Venezuelan dissidents um, and have followed it pretty cl closely and now I as in a sense I'm not given up but I've just you know there's really it's so corrupt and so broken and so clearly um, you know a rump state of what it once was and so clearly an illiberal country that even, there's only a few holdouts that still defend it. But I used to get really involved in these debates when there were still people in the mainstream defending it. When Hugo Chavez died, I was on Chris Hayes' show. And I always is one of the I, a couple, two or three media appearances in my life that I regret. And it was a, a panel of like five people or something. And they were all Chavistas except for me. And I actually tweeted about this recently. Hayes <laughs> responded to me. And he's like, well, there is me. And it's really funny because Chris used to work for the nation and, and I get on the bingo card that somebody posted the other day. Very nice guy. I really like Chris a lot. Uh, and I get that by the way, everybody's we're going to talk about that in nice a second. Yeah. Yeah. But, which means that our show is boring, by the way. Uh, if it's all we're saying the same shit all the time. But, but the, 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 I, I was against all these Chavistas and the one thing that everyone said, and this is actually true of Russia too, it's the fundamental understanding of what a democracy is. And what people don't understand is that a vote and a repeated vote does not make a democracy, people. Hmm. This is not a complicated subject that is made complicated by people that are incredibly thick about what they believe democratic institutions and democratic norms are. If there's a recall election in Venezuela and they finally, after some period of time, certify, which they're actually not doing now, and they have an election and Chavez wins. Hey, he's won 13, 14 elections, 15 elections. Let me tell you what is not free and what Americans would never consider a free election. This is also the case in Russia when people are talking about 80% approval ratings and Putin's going to win or whatever. You if you take the American media and if you wiped it out and put it in the hands of Donald Trump, the state controlled all of it. I'm not even there, talking there about were rumors that would happen. That, well, you know, it still might. <laughs> uh, if you t if you if you took 
PBS and made it not a thing. There's a there's a, a, a station in Venezuela called BTB. You can watch it on, on online. It is the most insane thing I've ever seen. There's a show on it called La Joya, the, the razor blade. And this guy, Mario Silva, goes on in front of pictures of Mao. No joke. I've, I've posted this on Twitter. And he denounces people with secret recordings that the intelligence Sabine has made and they play on the air to denounce opponents. They've done this to Maria Machado, lots of people. This is what the democracy is that is then having an election. The, the free newspapers, El Universal, has been taken over by some shell company. They don't do it like they used to, people. They don't do the Castroism where they shut down opposition newspapers by the point of a gun. They buy them mm. and they pack them and they do this stuff in a very, very quiet, slow way until all of a sudden the only way you can get news is on the internet. There's a big, this is an incredible thing, there's a big site in, uh, in Venezuela called Dollar Today. And it basically controls the parallel exchange rate. And the exchange rate is what everyone, you know, basically, they, this is how you get money. You don't get money on the open market. Black market money. That exchange rate is controlled by a guy who's very clever. He's a very interesting guy. And there's anti-Chavez, anti-Maduro stuff on the website. You know where he is? You know where he does this stuff? From the break room at a Home Depot in Alabama. What? Because he had to flee the country and he basically controls the exchange rate. That's the only source of information. If you have a lot wow. of poverty there, if you don't have an internet connection, the same is true in Russia, is that your point is very well taken and it's very serious. The fact that people in the West, we've always, and Matt knows this point very well, in the West, we always see Russia through our eyes. Mikhail Gorbachev ran for president. He got a half a percent of the vote. And America said, what the fuck? That guy's the hero of the Cold War. They hate him and nobody likes him. We talk about Novoya Gazeta, where Anna Politskaya worked, who was shot in the back of the head by who knows. That's an opposition newspaper. Gorbachev used to be a part owner of it, too. Nobody. It's in Moscow. It's like, a, it's like saying the New York Review of Books is the opposition newspaper. We see this through our prism. Most of the people in Russia get their news media and get their information through a news media that is controlled by the Kremlin. This, my friend, no matter how many elections you have, how many plebiscites you have, isn't democracy. And I've had so many experiences of people thinking that, well, you know, Chavez won 14 elections. Under what conditions? If this, if this was allowed to happen in the United States, there would be a revolution. It ain't that bad here, people. Sorry. This is beautiful. No, it's it's good. I want to out there. The, there's people who are like carving out YouTubes of our stuff. <laughs> the best thing about it, Camille rants and Moynihan rants. That was that was like that's a YouTube yeah, carnival rant. Best, best thing about it, a little drunk. <laughs> little, yeah, just a little drunk. Uh, so the, which which actually makes it better. And the not fifth worse. column bingo, and oh. I, I'm pulling a Camille here in that I don't have saved the name of the lawyer. I don't listener. have saved name. I don't have. <laughs> You're saved doing name. that Hungarian impression again. It just becomes me. After Here, the... I'll pull it up because this guy. Um, I, I, there, there were some errors. Is he going to be? Bingo, is he going to be super mad when when I say I think it was a Vietnamese name? Oh yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I'm just going to go to the ones that I find really funny. Michael's friends with Chris Hitchens. <laughs> I don't know. I thought I mentioned that one twice. <laughs> oh, uh, sorry. Well, it's Adrian K. Nuying. Michael's. The, uh, that's not is, how you pronounce it. But go ahead. I don't know. <laughs> how do you pronounce that? I'm not gonna. So no, he, he's got he's got Michael's ranty monologue. Yeah, Boom, yeah, yeah. Just cross just, that one off. Oh, and by the way, I also said Chris Hayes was nice during it, so you got two bingos there. Okay, where's that? Yeah. Uh, you're okay. looking at it. You actually looking at Camille's the not black. We haven't done that. This no, time we, we haven't no. done that. No. 
But how I'm, about, but how I'm, about but they I'm should not. Be, so. He should add to the board, Camille's definitely black from me and you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I am going to go to the future concert. Yeah. yeah. Front, front row tickets it's to like that future $9, concert. $9,000 Yeezys I, on. I bought, I bought two front row <laughs> tickets to the future concert, and I didn't actually have anyone to go with. I still, oh. I still don't. What happened to your wife? Well, my wife she doesn't. She doesn't want to go because Ever it's since like she got that it's futures and Migos and Tory Lanes and like Why it, it's pluralizing it's very everything? trap. That's, these are their names. Camille. Oh, these are shit. the names of yeah. the rap. Camille artists. says he's rich. By the way, obliquely, I got front row in that motherfucker. You just did. Like, well, you didn't right. say, I should just say I'm going to the concert. That's because because it just stands to reason. Yeah, it stands to reason. Yeah, like poor are like, I'm you're right. Like, it is they, a mistake. They do get one thing wrong here, although I'm going to make it right. That's the NATO one. That I Matt love NATO. NATO. Yeah, yeah, and no, Camille no, no, loves but, NATO. But, there but some, here's the thing. Today, there people there's, corrected it. There's news today. Uh, what is what? the news, Matt? The, news? the Senate voted 97 to 2 to ratify uh, Montenegro's accession. Who are the two? Rand Paul and someone else. I don't <laughs> of know. Of course. <laughs> well, I knew it was Rand Paul, but who was the other I'm one? not sure. Probably Mike Lee, but I'm not Van sure. Van Frawl? <laughs> yeah. Rand, Rand Paul has obviously been uh, co-opted uh, by the Russians. And, you yeah. know, I Matt likes NATO expansion. Are you happy about the, this? No, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm actually super unhappy about this. Oh. Yeah, because I think that there is a reason to have NATO, and then there are uh, reasons – there are not reasons to have NATO. And what is the not reasons in this case? The not reason in this case is that you want to have in part as part of your defensive alliance countries that are stable, that don't have a lot of problems with external enemies. Well, there's there's admittance requirements. There they, were, there were, but they've been watered down to the point of. But do they do they actually not adhere to those, or do they adhere to the ones currently? I I, I don't I I haven't looked at it in yeah. in a while, but the. The I can say with confidence that the uh, the admittance requirements that were enforced in a very serious way in the 90s about uh, treatment of uh, national minorities, solving yeah. border disputes, border all that border kind of disputes, stuff, uh, and not having of, external uh, yeah. problems and, and having a, a measure of stability. And this is a country that that survived barely a coup about nine months ago. Like you don't that, have the coup that countries. I was leading. Yeah. <laughs> it was like it was like literally. Like three guys from like the South Bronx that were leading that. It's like you, I could overthrow that country. I understand that point, but you know, there's a lot of Russian meddling going on. Yes, in no, I mean, at the moment, that's part of it. But like you, I think you need to demonstrate that you are beyond the ability of Russia to twiddle some dials and meddle. Right, Russia wants to meddle in Estonia. It can't. It it, it will do some. It'll create some damage. But Estonia is sizable Russian speaking minority. Right. I mean, yeah. and and they had and they had issues like that as far as uh, accession. But Montenegro, uh, I think most of the Balkan countries were admitted that are in NATO were admitted prematurely, uh, and I think that weakens an alliance. It's not just who. Will you go to bat for it's who will go to bat for you? And are you creating a community of people who have like minded uh, international culture? Montenegro just ain't there yet. And the purpose of doing it, the reason why John McCain's so excited, excited to the point of calling Rand Paul a stooge of Vladimir Putin, which was way the fuck. Over and the top. Rand, Rand Paul, as uh, as was pointed out of the same person who you mistook last night for somebody that you were friends with in Budapest. He pointed out on Twitter, and again, he's always very useful, uh, pointed out that Rand Paul's response, he said, fact check this, uh, Rand Paul's response was to call him a McCarthyite. 
Yeah. And it was very funny. He was on Sean Hannity's radio show, and he said, you know, these are the charges that, you know, didn't we get rid of this in the 50s kind of thing, which you typically hear, typically hear on Democracy Now! And you hear Rand Paul saying is that, you know, hey, uh, you know, these charges shouldn't be flung willy-nilly. And I agree with that. They shouldn't be flung willy-nilly. Um, but at the same time, I do think that, you know, Article 5 which has prevented, which is why Ukraine was dismembered and Estonia wasn't in 2007 when they launched a cyber attack and not a military attack. So, I mean, from the Montenegrins, and I, I haven't followed this too closely. I've been reading the kind of broad stroke stuff, and this is the thing that Camille and I talked about the other day. Always admit what you don't know. And I haven't followed it that closely, but I don't know what the Montenegrins themselves want. It's it's super mixed, and that's uh, the topic of uh, intense internal yeah. politics. The last uh, p- uh, opinion poll that I saw, it was right around 50%. So like, it's not like Poland. When Poland got in, it was 90%. It was 85%. It's like, get us the fuck in. Bill Clinton didn't want Poland in. He didn't want to deal with any of this stuff. It was the Central European countries who wanted security guarantees. Here, it's more an American. It it becomes the kind of uh, Ron Paul uh, paranoid fantasy of America uh, trying to shove Vladimir Putin's nose in these things. Uh, John McCain is motivated by, can I do something that I know Putin will hate? And can I also reverse Putin's uh, incursions in Central and Eastern There's Europe? There's a point, I think, of shoving people's nose in things, which I don't think is bad. At this point, provocation. When, when you're, no, it's not bad at all, because the provocations are all coming from the Russian side, is that, you know, when you're as expansionist and revanchist as Russia has been, that, you know, I don't feel too guilty about it. But we talked about, I think, did we talk about this on the air or off the air about, you know, this interesting thought that somebody that I was speaking to is actually writing something about this. And it was in the kind of larval stages of writing it, but that, you know, so many of the powers, and I did talk about it last week, um, this sense of, you know, grievance, that grievance and um, shame and humiliation, I guess was the word that he used, Hmm. is motivating so many of these, uh, of the politics today. When you ask anyone, any Russia specialist, why are they doing X, Y, or Z? Well, they were humiliated. The loss of an empire is humiliating. The encroachment of Western alliances on their border is humiliating. Stop fucking invading people as the Soviet Union, by the way, and we'll stop humiliating you. That's my point on it. Uh, (laughs) Humiliation, humiliation, ISIS. What happens when some nutbag that comes from Kent decides to fucking stab people and run them down? I'm humiliated by what? By the ummah, by the whole thing. You know, I'm humiliated by what's happening in here. It's like, you know, you've never been to Iraq. You don't know anything about Iraq and you're sitting, you know, watching cooking shows in Hull and all of a sudden you're humiliated by something. It's this sense that that becomes this word that we can use so much now. Right. People are humiliated. Russia is humiliated. So what do we do with these people who are humiliated? Treat them with humility? Treat them with kindness? I don't know. No. Yeah. No. Fuck them. Fuck them is what I said. Well, it's, it's, nice it's, nice it's nice to have a tidy narrative and, and explanation for, for what, is, uh, what is ailing Russia. Um, I, we, we are going to get the hell out of here in a couple, half a minute. I did not want to end before we celebrated the second anniversary of America's involvement in the conflict in Yemen. Uh, especially as we are at the point where the Trump administration seems poised to ratchet things up a bit in terms of American involvement in Yemen. We've already had um, the uh, the botched raid uh, earlier this year, um, and now we have uh, Americans ratcheting up their involvement. We've, we've seen some reports about the fact that the Pentagon is now doing away with some uh, Obama 
era restrictions. I am using uh, quotes and asterisks uh, in order to say restrictions nice. there nice. Um, because the Obama administration's restriction was only that the Pentagon, not that they could not aid the Saudi Arabians with refueling efforts and various other things, but that they had to ask for permission on a case-by-case basis. And the reason why they did this was because in October of last year, there was a devastating, I mean, calamitous, um, disgusting um, attack or assault uh, carried out by the Saudis in Yemen that resulted in the death of many, many, many civilians. Um, And uh, the United States continues to be involved in this conflict, uh, apparently in order to to satisfy, perhaps, I'm speculating here, perhaps to satisfy the Saudis and to help them create a space that is sort of free from Iranian influence in the region. Um, But uh, yeah, as things ratchet up, I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about the motivated reasoning that leads people to find uh, all of these various reasons to believe that Trump is sort of terrible and that he has been co-opted by the Russians. Um, I I hope that motivated reasoning does not lead them in the case of Yemen and however terrible this may continue to get uh, to believe that the Trump administration is narrowly responsible for what the hell is happening here uh, because the seeds of this unfortunate mess that is likely to be even more unfortunate as time goes on were planted firmly during the Obama administration. And in a way, of course, the the whole mess of the region of the Middle East um, has some roots that, that go even further back than that. Uh, but certainly with this one conflict uh, where the Americans are not pulling triggers but are, in fact, providing intelligence and are, in fact, providing munitions, the munitions for that devastating um, attack on in October uh, of last year were provided by the Americans. Um, it's it's worth noting that we are we're celebrating that mm-hmm. second anniversary today. And I would uh, point and that's out continuing to get worse just to tie it in with the uh, top of the show and our guest Thomas Massey, that probably the three uh, people on Capitol Hill who are talking about this the most are Thomas Massey and Justin Amash and Rand Paul, mm-hmm. some Democrats, too. But on the Republican side, for sure, uh, those people are bringing this up and mm-hmm. saying, I can't believe that we're doing this undeclared war right now. Uh, the president should go in there and, and, and either declare war or not. Yeah. Um, and their their bet, and it, I'd rather have someone betting than not betting, is that they can influence him and try to remind him of the best of his otherwise incoherent campaign promises <laughs> and say, hey, look, you didn't win by saying you were going to bomb the shit out of Yemen. Yeah. You just didn't. It, it, and that's it, true. It well, reminds he, me in a way. He did say he'd kill the terrorists and kill their families, although this yeah, is not yeah. really related to yeah. that, and yeah. except for the fact that it's, it's creating more terrorists because yeah. al-Qaeda um, or – I believe it is – no, it's ISIS um, in, in this particular region. Actually, I'm, I'm getting it confused now. I don't remember. But there are more. There's an Al Qaeda branch in Yemen, but it's, it, it's, it is Al Qaeda. Yeah. There we go. And it is. I'm a little drunk. It is funny because <laughs> so am I. It is funny because this is when it gets booze really, is in the middle of the yeah. bingo board. Yeah, there. yeah booze. It's, it's, this is a hot it's show. It's in red. Boom. Everything yeah. else is in blue. I mean, that bingo board is painted right now. Um, <laughs> complete. You can't even see anything. You can't see the text. I love NATO. But the the thing is. Uh, <laughs> It reminds me, in a way, of those Democrats who said after the the, the um, I think some Republicans do after the uh, Iraq War uh, commenced said we should bring back the draft. I think it was Charlie Rangel was one mm. of the ones that actually said always it. saying that always yep. saying bring always back saying the that. draft just as long as I don't have to give up my seventeen rent control apartment <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and my place where I would sleep on the beach. And, Where's my diaper? <laughs> yeah, wow, that was pretty good. That actually sounded like you're having a stroke, but that's okay. Yeah. It was was he a smoker? No, he just has that amazing that voice. So Do you remember weird. that New York Post cover of him sleeping? Look this up, oh, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the beach in like 
I can't remember where it was. Yeah. It was some Caribbean island. I think it was the Dominican. It was in the Dominican, yeah. I think. But it reminds me of that, is that what happens in the leading from behind thing without boots on the ground is very similar. It's like, if you know, unless you're, you know, Charlie Wrangle's idea was unless your boys are, are themselves dying, you don't give a shit. And if American munitions, to, to Camille's point, are the ones being discharged over over Yemen, people just don't, not only don't really care, they don't know a Houthi from a Hutu. I mean, it's, 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 it's all the same. But I know we had to wrap this up, so I'm going to say when um, some idiot wrote this, I'm going to modify it, and this one will make Matt happy, is that some idiot said this. Oh. Uh, last night I was trying to go to bed and I turned on CNN and there was one of those typically brain-dead panels with Katie McInerney. I have a story about her that is pretty crazy that I will not tell, uh, but it's great. <laughs> send booze. Oh, yeah? Send booze. No, it's not about me. Uh, send booze, and I'll tell it. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is great. This is how you do it. You know, just give we, have, we have another untouched bottle yeah, behind us. Yeah, no, I know. I'm going to drink that, too. But I'll say this. This somebody had said this was, um, was uh, McInerney. Was uh, on CNN last night. Kaylee, Kaylee, whatever the hell her name is, the 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 sort of be nice bubble headed, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, the dingbat on CNN. I'm gonna get her over here. Get her over here. I, I you, will. Think, you think it's hard to you debate no, her? I, I, I didn't <laughs> say. I didn't say yeah. it'd be hard. I just yeah. said I'd get her over. Get her over here. Yeah. She's a dingbat. Um, so, she wrap is. it up. Wrap I'm it up. Sorry. You keep interrupting me. <laughs> yeah, the, the longer it goes on, the more misogynist it it's seems. Not misogynist. I, Fucking I everyone. Not, the other dingbat is a man, and I'm getting to him. So she's saying about uh, 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 you know Obama golfing <laughs> and this stuff. And so uh, Don Lemon reads a bunch of stuff. I hear some tweets you said about Obama golfing and you're, you're you know and, and Trump's golfing all the time. And she's like, ah, oh, you know, well, I don't know why she's Barney Fife. I, I can't, I can't believe it. He's golfing. And then <laughs> it's Jimmy Stewart. I don't know why. I've been drinking. So, um, so next to her is Peter Beinart. Now, tick off a thing on your on your uh, beach blanket bingo because he's. I used to work. He was a nice guy. Um, so just tick that off. Take it off right now. Just do it. Is that normalizing a neocon though? That's, the, that's uh, well. The, here's the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kaylee or whatever her name is makes the argument that George W. Bush refused to do that stuff during the Iraq War in solidarity with troops dying or something, and hmm. Peter Beinart. Uh, right before the commercial break, very proud of himself, leans back in his chair. He's like, you know what? With that voice. Uh, you know what? Uh, honk. His fucking seagulls are flocking when he starts talking. This is totally <laughs> anti-Semitic. Go on. No, how is that? He's just got a honking voice. Have you ever heard him talk? And he's like, honk. And the, the birds are circling. And so he says, he's like, you know what? Don't get involved in a war in Iraq then. Peter fucking Beinart said Thank that? Thank you, Matt Welch. <laughs> Peter fucking Beinart said don't get yeah, involved yeah, yeah. in the war don't in Iraq. Get in a, involved in a don't get involved in the good war. Which, yeah. <laughs> he said the good fight. The good fight. How liberals, I remember the subtitle, how liberals and only liberals can win the war on terrorism. Mm. And he was wow. the editor of the New Republic when it was very, 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 very pro-Iraq When war. it was even the New Republic. So oh the question that we will address some other time mm. is... When when you were pro Iraq war for some time, I got a book contract out of it, made money off of it. What? A uh, lot. Like a half a million dollars. You really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. No, I think it was a five hundred thousand uh, dollar advance, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Really? Are we still on air? Can I say this? Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. It's, it's all gone. What so, do you really mean by you're Kaylee? Like, you're like Connie Chung talking to Newt Gingrich's mother. No, no, just say it in my ear. Um, remember that? Uh, Good reference. So, it's all calming so, back. So he says that, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Cut to commercial. Like, dude, 
you were like the biggest hawk of them all. So the question is, at what point do you get to make references ribbing other people when you were doing the same thing at the same time? So anyway, I'm drunk and we're going to go. Right? At the same time. What's great about that point is that uh, Kaylee uh, McInerney, whatever the fuck her name is. Mm. Has um, no institutional knowledge of Washington. (laughs) No, but what was famous about that whole exchange was not that moment. That was the moment that Moynihan pointed to. The the, the famous part of the exchange is that she said. Daniel Pearl. (laughs) That that Obama was golfing. And I'm laughing. I know Daniel Pearl's family. I was part of the Los Angeles Press Club, which has an annual Daniel Pearl Award for courageous journalism. Judea Pearl. And really lovely people. Um, and, she, and absolutely a courageous journalist, too, yes, by the way. Yes, he was. Wall Street Journal. Uh, he was killed in 2002. Um, she said that Barack Obama was golfing. When I mean, he might have been. Danny he just Pearl. also wasn't president. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Was, yeah. yeah. Oh, but yeah. actually, in, in, in terms of everything, Peter Beinart's uh, comment is worse. She flubbed on the name. He recoiled from that, but I didn't see the full clip. But did, did, did anyone on that panel, is anyone smart enough to point out that, that she was wrong? I don't recall. Okay, I'll go back and look at the tape. All right. Send I, think, us I think we're done here. I think we're done here. I think we've done remarkable work. It's uh, amazing work you, you have been blessed. This has been a remarkable opportunity for you. Uh, if you're grateful for this amazing gift. When uh, can I ask them to send me money? <laughs> is this, Please well, go poor. and give us five Was this episode 52, by the way? This is episode, well, it depends on how you're counting. It's going to be episode 51. Okay, because yeah. of the last episode. Well, there's – and the triple X. It doesn't matter. We shouldn't always do so this. It's, it's episode 51. It's not going to be – If you PayPal me $500, <laughs> I'll get the last episode up Stop there. it. Yeah. Stop, I'll, I'll, stop I'll, begging. What, what won't you do? Begging. Um, and is it for $500. <laughs> what kind of capitalist do you do? That's an I, exchange. I have, the for, lost, yeah. I have the lost episode. You don't. So yeah, you can't yeah, even – I got that shit. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. Yeah. We're done okay, here. Bye. All right, see you later. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth column.